0: This is Perspectives, the show where an examination of our many differences often shows us how much we have in common. I'm Condis Presley, and I am delighted to speak on the phone today with a former Atlanta resident living a little bit further north now, desperate to come home. But when I heard her in another interview just the other day, I said, we have got to tell her story to her people in her town. Who is her, or actually grammatically correct, is who is she? She is Patricia Williams, and she has got this most amazing memoir out. It's called Rabbit, the Autobiography of Miss Pat, and it is a fascinating, fascinating read. And Miss Pat joins us on the radio right now. Thanks for making time to talk to us, Pat.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Your story is incredible. I heard you uh, just a few days ago, didn't know, you grew up right, here in Atlanta, and have, I read, and you should be dead, and you're not, and you're (laughs) thriving, and that is incredible, and there, by the grace of God, you survived. How did that happen?
1: Girlfriend, you said it, by the grace of God, I should be dead. Sometime I was wondering, like, well, I think he saved me so I can tell this story and make people laugh with it.
0: Now, you're a comedian, and you make people laugh, indeed, but the book is, is called Rabbit, the Autobiography of Miss Pat, and the name Rabbit has significance. Tell our audience what that is.
1: The name Rabbit is my childhood name. Um, my my stepfather gave it to me. I used to like carrots, so he gave me the name Rabbit, and I grew up with it in my teens, and then
0: didn't stop using it until I got married. You've written this memoir. Why now, and what? Are you wanting readers to take away from your story?
1: Well, I wrote the memoir, so, because as I became, as the years passed by, my comedy career, people kept asking me, you know, like, I kept relating to people from all walks of life, like black people, white people, Asian people. They would walk up to me like, oh my God, you're telling my story. And I'm like, really? Because I only thought this, you know, I had a kid at 15, two kids at 15 by a married man, and was in a visa relationship, got into selling drugs. I thought this only happened to poor black people. No, this happened to people from all walks of life. And people kept saying, you should write a book. You should tell your story more. And I was I was approached by a journalist about two years ago, and we sat in and we put it together.
0: Now, most of the story takes place right here in Atlanta back in the 80s and 90s when crack was just the worst thing. In the book, you talk about the city, especially your neighborhood. The detail is so vivid. Did you mean for it to become another character in the book? Because that's how it feels.
1: No, I was just, you know, it was, it was, I, I was just telling this story, you know, how vivid I remember living in the bluff, moving from the bluff to Vine City to the West End. And I just wanted people to really be able to, if they have never been there, I wanted them to be able to be there in the book.
0: Now, your mother wasn't very involved in your life. That's correct, right?
1: No, she wasn't. Well, up until I had that first baby. Then I moved out. I moved out when I was uh, 14. I had my first kid when I was 14. So I moved out after that. I became an emancipated minor through a caseworker that I had. And then I got on my own. I was on my own ever since.
0: But there was someone who really looked out for you and I guess was just your angel.
1: Well, it starts back, I went to English Avenue Elementary, and I'm quite sure you're familiar with English Avenue. Um, I went there and I had a teacher named Miss Truth. And you know, I was the kid that everybody picked on. I was poor, my hair nappy, you know, not smelling right. And she just took up the time to, you know, know what I was going through and to help me. Like you can't teachers can't do it now. Like she would get me in the bathroom in the morning, just tell me to get there a little early, wash me up, comb my hair, brush my teeth. And teachers can't, they don't do it anymore, and they can't. And, you know, this is the first person that I thought that really cared about me. She also the lady who taught me how to read, the most patient person I ever met. And that's why we call her the lady in the, uh, in the badass boots in
0: my book. <laughs> <laughs> how long was she active in your life? Because I think you said that she's, she's passed on now, right?
1: Yes, yeah, she's, she's now. Uh, she was only, I only seen her for two years, and then we moved because we moved a lot. Like we would get evicted all the time, so I lived all up and through the bluff, Oliver Street, Simpson Road. So I was there about two years that she helped me out.
0: In the book, you talk about uh, selling drugs as a child. Mm-hmm. How did how did that happen?
1: Well, selling drugs came about because I had two kids by this married man. By the time I was fifteen, dropped out of school in the eighth grade, and. I saw him sell drugs, so he would sell drugs and pay my rent and stuff. And one day he got locked up, and I had nobody to pay my rent. And so I just, you know, I tried to get a job, but I'm 15. I need a work permit back in those days, and I would literally take my two kids with me and say, "Hey, this is my work permit," and it didn't work out. So I went. I started doing What, everyth- what they? Oh, I'm sorry. I started doing what everybody in my community was doing, which was selling drugs. It was the most easiest thing
0: ever. So you go from a very difficult upbringing, a teen mother, not really, a preteen mother with two children, by a man who already belongs to somebody else. And now you are a His wife
1: was pregnant when I met him with their second child. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm I'm a young girl. You know, one thing I realize now, I was searching for love. I was searching for that that fatherly figure in my life, that manly figure. And he came along at the right time. I was at my lowest. I really felt like nobody loved me. Here I am, 12 years old, don't know anything. And he said the magic words, I love you. And that was it. Come to find out, his wife knocked on my door, and he's uh, he's married, and she's pregnant with this second child. And I'm pregnant with his third child, and I am 14 years old. And nobody took my age into consideration. That's what's so crazy. You know, this guy signed both of my kids' birth certificates. He, he was in his 20s. Nobody said anything. I gave birth at Grady Memorial Hospital.
0: Doesn't the law define that as statutory rape? If you're pregnant, you're not of age, and he's 20 years old? Yes,
1: and let me tell you about this. My, my mama had a case caseworker, which is called d there in Atlanta, and she wanted to prosecute him. It was a white lady. I'll never forget. Her name was Miss Stewart. And she really wanted to prosecute him. And my mama said, my mama mama literally looked at me and said, did he rape you? And, you know, I'm in love. I was like, no, ma'am. I gave it to him. That's my boyfriend. My mama told the caseworker to get the hell out of her house.
0: I mean, you were shot. How did that happen?
1: He shot me. I mean, he, he, yes, he was very abusive. And we got into it one time and he hit me in the head and it, and it, hit me across the head, and the gun went off and cracked the back of my skull. Yes, he shot me when I was 15, and then I was shot again when I was dealing drugs in a drive-by, and a guy shot me up under my arm, and it blew my areola off. <laughs> How can you Which laugh ended about that? A- <laughs> because it's life. I mean, you know, what am I going to do, cry and dwell? I mean, I'm here. I'm happy. You know, I went through all of that. to get I learned that you got to go through something and get to something. And it you, would be no Miss if I didn't go through what I went through.
0: This is very true. And, and now you're a successful comedian. You've been on all sorts of TV shows. You do radio shows. You're working. I mean, you're a big star. You're working with other big stars. When did that transition for you happen? And how have you been able to take the adversity that you've experienced in your life and make it funny and relate to other people?
1: I just tell my story. Like I said earlier, I just love telling my story. And the reason why I love telling my story, because I want people to know no matter what you've been through, it's going to be all right. You can't dwell on the past. You don't have control of that. It's over. It's going to be all right. Pick up up and go. That's what I do. I mean, I keep it moving. That's what I live by. I can't cry over the field. Milk is over. What am I going to do to that man because he violated me and he beat me and he mistreated me? Look, I'm winning. He work at Jiffy Lou. Seriously? Yeah, he's somewhere changing oil, and his 50. And look what I'm doing. I have a book. I'm working on a TV show with Lee Daniels. I tour the world. I am in a great relationship. I've been married over 20 years. He ain't never black my eye on
0: Friday. (laughs) You're working on a television show with Empire's Lee Daniels? Tell us about that. Yes,
1: I am. We we sold a show in February. We sold a show last year to Fox together. I'm blessed. I'm okay.
0: And you've been married over 20 years to, as you say, a man who's not darkened your eye on a Friday night. Tell us about your family now, your kids, your grandkids. I mean, you're right. You, you're you winning.
1: Yeah, I have uh, I have four kids, which, you know, I caught my first two. Well, you don't know, but I caught my first two, my Medicaid kids, and my second set, my Blue Cross Blue Shield kids. <laughs> <And laughs> There's a big difference. You hear me? These last two kids don't know what a struggle is, girlfriend. And, um... Um, I have a i have three grandbabies by my oldest son, and my daughter's still down in Atlanta. My my 19 year old just went off to college this week, and I have a 17 year old getting getting ready to graduate. I also have four kids that my niece just left me with two years ago. No. Yes, yeah, you know it's a. I come from a family where it's a cycle of of alcohol, dropouts, teenage pregnancy, abuse. So if you don't get off that train, if you don't get off that train, you will continue, you will continue to go on that cycle. And I, I was just fortunate enough to say, hey y'all, I don't want to live like this. I don't want anybody messing with my kids. I don't want my daughter to drop out. I don't want my daughter to be a te- teenage mom. But it's continued. My mom, you know what's crazy? When I wrote this book, my mama was the same. My mom and daddy was eight years apart, like me and my kids' father. My mama had her last kid at 20, her sixth child. So it's a cycle.
0: Yeah, you're right. And you broke out of the cycle, and you want to make sure now that your nieces and nephews don't get caught in that cycle either because my, you're, rais- you're raising them. Yeah,
1: my sister, my uh, my daughter was the first person to graduate in my family in three generations and the first one to ever go to college. And you know what? I never really thought about college. All I wanted my kids to do was to graduate from high school, be productive, still citizen and doesn't do not become a convicted felon like me because i tell my kids all the time you can mess up your credit history a thousand times but you mess up your criminal background history it will follow you to your grave i'm when i was 30 when i moved to indianapolis 10 years ago i got a job at at speed at a gas station do you know they fired me because i was convicted felon 20 years ago i'm not even good enough in this country to pump gas
0: girlfriend Mm, but you're good enough in this country to tell your story and to make people laugh. When did you discover that you had that gift and that comedy was going to be your 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 way out, your salvation?
1: When I when Bill Clinton changed the laws and said and created welfare to work programs, so I couldn't stay at home and watch the young and the rest is like my mom anymore. <laughs> then he tricked us, girl. I voted for him too, and he made me go get a job. I was so mad at him. <laughs> But uh, that program came about, and I ended up meeting a nice lady named uh, Cynthia, who's still there in Atlanta. She was my case worker. And, you know, I'm with the scheme like everybody else. You go in, you make them feel sorry, make them think you're trying, and you don't. And this lady looked me in my eye, and she was like, you're not going to get away with anything. And we started talking, and she thought my stories were hilarious. And I was trying to make her feel sorry for me. And she wouldn't stop laughing. And she was like, you should try being a comedian. But I didn't listen at first. I went on and became a uh, got my GED, became a medical assistant. Bam. I go to get a job, and I'm a convicted felon. I can't get a job in a doctor's office. So I took her advice and started comedy, because comedy is the only job I ever had that, would not, that don't check your criminal background history. They don't care what you did 20 years ago. Just be funny.
0: And you are very funny. So what do you want readers perhaps who are in situations like you have experienced in your past and they think that there's no way out. What is the the message you have for them?
1: There is a way out. All you got to do is believe in yourself. Nobody's going to believe in you the way you believe in yourself. Never give up. You know, never give up. People ask me all the time, why aren't you? You know, you find people who've been through stuff and they, they become so angry. Don't ever let anger and hate control you because I tell people this all the time. When you hate something, of somebody that hate will control you. Let go. I mean, my mom is dead and gone, and this dude is out of my life. So why would I? Why would I continue to hate this man who did me so wrong and allow him to control me? I'm not allowing a man who work at Jiffy Lube to control me, girlfriend. Friend, I'm
0: okay. Yes, indeed, you are. And we want everybody to pick up and read your book. Patricia Williams, written with journalist Janine Amber. The book is Rabbit, the autobiography of Miss Pat. When are we going to see you in Atlanta sometime soon? You got any gigs coming up?
1: Not in Atlanta. I'll be back there next year. But I come to Atlanta once a month and get my hair fixed.
0: (laughs) As many women do. Pat Williams, Miss Pat, it's been an honor and a pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. Joining us as a special guest today is Nick Lowry. He is a Pro Bowl NFL kicker. He was in the league for 18 years, and, of course, we've been talking a lot this week about the league. He uh, played and was very close friends with uh, former Pittsburgh Steeler player Mike Webster. Uh, we're going to talk to Nick about a couple of things today. He is a very uh, personal firsthand account and knowledge of what CTE did to his friend's life. But first, Nick, I want to talk to you a little bit about the NFL, the league, and the— I don't know, where do we begin the protest? First, there was you Colin know, I Kaepernick here.
2: Where do we end? <laughs> where do we end? I it, think that's, that's probably what, what, what
0: most, yeah, I think that's probably what most of America wants is for this to end. So so talk to me about the brotherhood that is the league, that is the NFL.
2: Well, I mean, I, I think there. by framing that question, I mean, certainly no one can know uh, how amazing it is to have been part of a band of brothers, not quite the same as being in a foxhole, but in its own way. Uh, It is one of the things that are the the prime elements of life. I interviewed 32 NFL Hall of Famers in Canton two months ago. Every one of them said that the camaraderie is what made their experience extra special, not just being one of the best players in the game. So having said that, um, loyalty to each other is incredibly important. Um, But I I have some biases, and I just want you to know that really have influenced me. My next-door neighbor, think about this. My next-door neighbor growing up was Byron Wizard-White, who commandeered the buses and the marshals uh, in Selma, Alabama to protect the marchers for Bobby Kennedy to allow them to march for the civil rights movement. Uh, That was my next-door neighbor. He led the NFL in rushing for two different teams, became a Supreme Court justice for 31 years, a a true Kennedy uh, figure of great leadership and a a supreme athlete. And then next-door neighbor till a year ago was Muhammad Ali for 10 years. And so I, I was spoiled, honest by being around people that see that leadership is, is making the hard stand. So I respect my teammates' rights to express themselves. Um, I would just say two things. One, I would stand for the anthem just because my father was a reconnaissance pilot in World War II. My uncle was literally the chief assistant to Lord Tedder, who was number two under Dwight Eisenhower in Europe during World War II. My mother helped Document the death camps. Can you imagine that uh, as being a British uh, intelligence officer who spoke perfect German? So I would stand, but I I think certainly the right to express yourselves and and also to not be compartmentalized as if this thing is about disrespecting the flag. It's about racial equality. I will say this. uh, Muhammad Ali gave up everything, literally everything. And ironically, you're there in Atlanta what greater moment to see the redemption of all of that sacrifice than Muhammad Ali at the Atlanta Olympics holding the Olympic flame. And part of that was that he was willing to sacrifice everything. Colin Kaepernick didn't do this when he was playing as a Super Bowl player. He did it when he, you know, was uh, frankly a second rate quarterback, certainly capable of playing in the NFL, but the timing was not the same. And, for those players that do this, I would simply ask them to make sure that their actions off the field mirror what a symbolic stand is on the field. Because if it's just in a symbolic stand, you know what? We don't need that. But if it's actually going to be mirrored by actions as, as great leaders as NFL players can be, then I'm all for it.
0: Now, you finished your career, Nick, with the Chiefs, correct?
2: I did not. I played 14 years for Kansas City. And then I played my last three years with the New York Jets.
0: Okay, so Nick, you uh, played 14 years for Kansas City. You finished your career uh, with the Jets. You kicked. As a kicker, you're pretty reasonably safe doing your job because if you're not, that's 15 yards. CTE (laughs) is, um, gosh, it's a terrible thing. And to only know that someone suffered from it after it takes their lives, how did you become a spokesperson for CTE Awareness?
2: Well, my, my dear friend on the cheese for two years was former Steelers great Mike Webster, who's featured pr- prominently in the movie uh, featuring the story of Dr. Benadamalu played by Will Smith. And to know the, um, the suffering that went on, you know, encephalopathy, uh, in chronic traumatic encephalopathy, it means in the Greek, in the head, suffering. And I just, when I think about that, that's the private and now public torment of not only Mike Webster, but my dear friend Kenny Stabler, uh, my, my wonderful teammate on two game-winning field goal uh, Pro Bowl teams in Hawaii, Junior Seau, my fellow player rep, Dave Dewarson, and hundreds, probably thousands of other players. So, you know what, this is the best game in America by far. It teaches courage, loyalty. Being a great teammate, being part of that band of brothers, it teaches coming back from adversity. It teaches how to focus on the right things day in, day out, when you're exhausted and tired. But it also teaches us to be leaders by example. And I believe that you know we have to do everything we can to protect players. And Ken Life Sciences has uh, developed and has the only patent, government patent, to investigate the application of, of CBDs to help reduce CTE. So I'm really excited because uh, actually yesterday, Condis, uh Ann McGee, Dr. Ann McGee from BU, the same Ann McGee who came out with that study five weeks ago, uh, that said that 110 of 111 NFL players uh, had CTE that were, whose brains were sent to BU also said, we may have found a biomarker. So we may be at that place where we have the tipping point to say we can save players now when they're 30 and 40, we can do much more. And there is ample evidence that CTE and the work we've done at Can Life Sciences, at Temple, and also incredible stuff at Salk Institute in San Diego and La Jolla, at Stanford University, at UCLA, they're all saying that CBDs, that's not marijuana, but hemp, low THC, if not zero THC, CBDs uh, are profoundly, Helpful to rebuilding the brain, unclumping those what are called amyloid betas or the clumping of cells, the A betas, and restoring, if not even regrowing, the brain.
0: That's huge.
2: It's immense. And, uh, you know, why wait? I mean, you and I know whether it's the civil rights uh, struggles that, that seem to take forever. Or whether it's something like you know any other of the issues that are so huge today, climate warming, et cetera, but i'm I'm just going to stick to this. We know where we're going with this. We know that we can greatly reduce concussions my My belief is we can reduce concussions by two thirds by having the mobile virtual player blocking dummy that ends teammate on teammate tackling, which is what the Ivy League has already voted to do, so sixteen of the thirty two NFL teams already have these. Uh, and that shows that practice hitting is what is as important and as profoundly negative on the health of the brain as anything else. Um, but also, the CTE uh, cellular helmet that's what it is it's the interior cellular helmet UCLA Torrance found in 2014 that traffic accident victims, those that were had a, t- cannabinoids and THC in their system, were five times less likely to die from a traumatic brain injury. So there's good stuff here. We want to work with the commissioner of the NFL and get this into the hands and uh, the stomachs, if you will, the systems of soccer moms and dads and their children, football moms and dads, because uh, football and life are contact sports.
0: Last thing for you, Nick, before we wrap this up, how was it knowing and being friends with and neighbors with – the greatest of all time?
2: Uh, You know, I'm a pretty lucky guy. Byron Wizard White growing up and then Muhammad Ali. And um, I had breakfast with him several times. Um, And and by the way, his Parkinson's probably would have, uh, my anecdotal, my personal opinions would have been aided by CBDs and he'd probably still be around today and have a more quality of life. Having breakfast with him at eight o'clock in the morning till nine with Lonnie, uh, his wife in the kitchen, and Marilyn, his sister-in-law, his full-time caregiver. And uh, having a somewhat lucid conversation with him, you know, between eight and nine real conversation. And then suddenly sort of a curtain would go down and, and unless there were kids who he would always make the exception for, um, you know, he was more withdrawn, but there was a charisma and a courage and a dignity. We don't hear that word enough. There was a dignity with this man and a humor that was undeniable. And, uh, I feel so blessed, to have gotten to know him, spent time with him and his family, Um, one of the truly great Americans. And by the way, when he took a stand, it took a while, didn't it? It took a long time for him to be uh, given redemption. And yet now, it's pretty hard to find somebody that doesn't think what he did uh, was tremendously courageous and an example of true leadership.
0: That's right. Service is the rent you pay for taking up this space on the earth, right? And that's what he said.
2: He did, and, and uh, he was an example with his love. I mean, the thing that I got from him was his commitment to all human beings, Muslim, Christian, Jewish, you know, Hindu, any religion, any culture, to love each other. And uh, that was the clarity he had in his last 10 years.
0: Excellent. Nick Lowry, uh, how can folks follow you on social media? You got a, a Twitter or Facebook so that we can keep uh, up my, with what you're doing? Twitter
2: is, is at Lowry Nick. At Lowry Nick, and I'm Nick Lowry, of course, L-O-W-E-R-Y, on Facebook. And, and go to Kind of Life Sciences and look at the important work we're doing. And please, if you can, write a letter to the commissioner and say, hey, instead of worrying about these exterior helmets quite so much, let's focus on the work we absolutely know will make a difference by getting uh, cellular helmet vitamins, if you will, into the hands of mothers and fathers and their children.
0: Couldn't have put in any better. Nick Lowry, appreciate you. Thank you for your time.
2: Thank you, Connors. Appreciate you.
0: Perspectives is a half hour we produce with you in mind. If there's something you think we ought to be talking about, let me hear from you. Tweet me, myandalistcondo 29 on Twitter, or leave a message on our Facebook page. We do appreciate your listening and hope you'll be back next week at this same time as we examine another perspective.